You are listening to Epic Church San Francisco's podcast. Everybody today? Really? All right. I don't, I'm not going to ask who's got money on the game tonight, um, but I hope, I hope you win as long as you've got money on the Niners. Uh, it's going to be a good one tonight. Hey, you know what's crazy? There are so many things in our lives that have been created, but many of them never created to be used alone. Right, think about a seesaw. Anybody ever been on a seesaw by yourself, like even going back to childhood? It's just not, it's just lame, right? And it's dangerous, right? It's dangerous. So many things that were created never to be used alone. Think about walkie-talkies. Now, I had to get special permission for all my props from our boys this morning, but how lame would a walkie-talkie be if all you had was yourself? Uh, come in over and out. I mean, you could change. Now, some of you have multiple personalities and would probably be a good time for you, but for the rest of us, like, this is just kind of lame. I mean, think about, like, the old pastime of playing catch, right? I mean, how lame would it be if, I know, when I'm bored or just a little bit antsy, I'm on the floor throwing the ball up to myself, right? Anybody else? Anybody else ever do this as a kid or as an adult? It helps me think better. It just helps me, keeps me focused on what I'm talking about, helps me stay clear. But how lame would catch be? Something I've done with my dad who's here this morning all my life as a kid. Now I do on a daily basis with my own boys. Um, how lame would it be if you couldn't play catch? Who, who's up for catching a deep one? Seriously? Now we got low ceilings, okay? I've got a lot of disclaimers. Um, I threw in this section last time. We're going to go, we're going back to the wall, okay? Get everybody's, everybody's paying attention, at least for now. I'm going to do a little Brett Favre sidearm thing, okay? You ready back there? I'm, I'm, somebody better come down with this ball, okay? But give it back to me. My kids will disown me. Oh, no! Did we catch it? You caught it! For those of you that didn't see, it hit the hands of two other individuals, and Diana came down with it. Wow! That, spike it, you can spike it. Come on, everybody look right here. You never know how many touchdowns she'll score this year. Spike it right in the middle. Nice. That is awesome. That is so awesome. Man, this is going to be a better service than the last service. Um, I had a guy all decked out in a Roger Craig jersey in the last service, hit him right in the numbers, and he dropped it. So anyway, um, at least that's the way I saw it. Quarterback's always right. Um, Listen, there are so many things, right? There's probably a never-exhausting list of things that were never created to be done alone. They're just lame, or even some things, if we try to do them alone, they're dangerous, right? There are certain things of furniture where you see two people on the outside of the box, and you're like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that to my back because I needed more than one person. Well, what I want to do is give you something the rest of the morning that's one of the key things that you need to be focused on that's on this list of things that are never meant to be done, never created to be done alone. And here's what it is. Your, your life. Not the person beside you's life who really is needy. Your life, my life, all of our lives were never created to be done alone. And that's really the, the, the idea for this morning. That's, that's my whole point. And I'm going to try to, as we conclude our reset series today, Rejecting Status Quo starts next week. And so um, if you like average and you like mediocrity, don't come to the next series. But if you want to reject status quo with the rest of us, show, show up next week. It's going it's to be fun. But as we conclude the reset series, I want to state a compelling case for why you should be terribly afraid to do life alone. I want to give you a compelling cause why you, for the rest of your days on earth, however many they should be from God, why you should be terribly afraid to ever live life alone. That's what I want to do. And you might say this morning, Ben, we live in San Francisco, even when I want to be alone. 
right? I mean, it's true for me. I, I've got to close my eyes and pretend like there's not all these people around. I, I get that. And I also get the last report I saw that second only to Manhattan is our population density here in San Francisco, meaning there are more people per square mile in our city than any other city uh, in the U.S. at least, uh, except for Manhattan. And so I, I get we're around people all the time. So here's what I'm not talking about today. I'm not talking about do you have coworkers. I am not talking about do you have neighbors. I'm assuming we all have neighbors, right? Anybody out in the country in San Francisco? No, we all have neighbors. What I'm talking about is living life deeply connected with people who are the right kinds of people. And if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, if you consider yourself and you're on the path of those of us trying to go, hey, we want to figure out how to orient our lives around Jesus, um, this is a crucial paramount issue for you. But even if you're unsure of the Jesus piece in this, this is huge for you too because this is just the way God created life to work best. My main text for this morning is what we call in the Bible wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Our volunteers will place one in your hands. The rest of us, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes sits after Proverbs. Uh, yes, it's after Proverbs. It's before Song of Solomon and Isaiah. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. For many of you who are, which is great, getting those, uh, receiving those gift Bibles this morning, we're on page 357. Page 357. For the rest of us, go about to the middle of your Bible, uh, and if you get to Psalms, keep going to the right. Uh, if you get to Isaiah, go back to the left. Those are big books that you might find yourself uh, in the middle of. So that's my whole case for this morning. I want you uh, to, to be terribly afraid, not depressed or sad about living life alone. I want you to be afraid of the dangers of living life unconnected, alienated, disconnected from other human beings at a deep level. So would you stand with me as we look at this text together? Just a moment, we're going to read Ecclesiastes 4. We'll start in verse 7. We'll read through verse 12. But let me give you uh, the context why you might want to lean in and listen to the words of this man. This is written by a guy named Solomon. The Bible declares that he is the wisest man to ever live. So some of you thought you were on that list. You're not. Um, Solomon was declared as the wisest man to ever live. He set out to do this experiment. He had tons of wealth. And so he set out to find all the things in life that would satisfy. So all the things we would put on our list. So he had, uh, you're like, well, probably relationships. Yeah, he had uh, like 300 wives and another 700 or so concubines, okay? He, he, was, uh, he was pursuing all he could in that department. We'll leave it there, all right? He, he owned, like where you and I, if we were wealthy, we might get uh, backstage passes to a concert. Solomon owned singers, okay? He owned them. They sang when he said sing, okay? Um, he had vineyards. It took him 14 years to build his house, and he had a huge crew. So he just said, hey, here's all I want to do. I want to find out what satisfies in the end, what makes me happy in the end, what fulfills me in the end. But what's crazy, he got to the end of that, and he said, most of this is meaningless. Most of it is elusive. He said it's vanity. It is like chasing the wind. And here's why I think you and I should lean in this morning. If you find the wisest guy to ever live, and he thinks most of life is meaningless, but he gives you some things that are meaningful. Don't you want to know what those are? I do. This guy's wise. Here we go, chapter 4, verse 7. Solomon, he says again, this is his theme, remember, I saw vanity or meaninglessness under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? 
And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. You may be seated. I pray that God will use this text to do in your hearts what it's been doing in my heart really throughout this weekend. And so, um, to be honest, I was going to start teaching in verse 9. That's kind of where the big two are better than one, and we'll get there in a moment. But when I saw verses 7 and 8 and thought about the culture that we live in, this hardworking, overachieving, highly educated, the land of entrepreneurs, I thought, no, we need to hear verse 8 and verse 7. So 7, he just says it's all vanity. But look at verse 8. You can bring it on the screen. Verse 8, he says, he says there's like this person who has no other in their life. No son or brother, but they have nobody. It's the person who's living life alone, not that people aren't around him, but he's not deeply connected with any other individual. It says all he does is toil. All he does is work. And before you claim something else, listen, God is for work. I believe we will work in eternity. So some of you are like, no, Ben, I would like to just sit on the cloud. Uh, I get bored easily. I'm hoping I'm going to do some work there. Uh, I think it'll be meaningful work there. Uh, Different discussion. But he says, this is the person who has made his life all about his work. This is his top priority. It is what he values the most. And he says, this person has nobody else in his life. And so there's no end to his work. And yet his eyes are never satisfied with riches, right? Riches are elusive is what Solomon's learned. And he's not just observing one man's thought process. He's talking about people in general. And so he knows that he's like, it's elusive. The guy thinks if he makes this, he'll be satisfied. Nope. So he has to make this. Doesn't do it. He's never satisfied with riches. And he's never stopped to ask this question. I'll paraphrase, but you'll see it on the the screen. He's never stopped to ask, wait, who am I working for? Why am I doing this? Even if I get all the riches in the world, I've got no one to share it with. Why am I about what I'm about? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Do you see it? For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity. This also is meaningless. And then he says it's it's an unhappy business. Now listen, I know what's true about many of us in this room. It's true about your pastor as well. I want to be the best. I'm willing to stay up late and go for it. I'm willing to pay for conferences. I'm willing to get mentors and coaches. And I do these things. I want to. But even for me, with a noble role like being the pastor, this can't become my life. This can't become my life. And whatever your thing is, no matter how noble it is, no matter how exciting it is, no matter how crucial it is to the world in which we live, it can't become your life either. Let it be a big part of your life. In fact, he's going to talk about work starting in verse 9. We need to work hard, and we need to work in tandem usually with people and enjoy reward. We'll get to there in just a second. But is it possible that you're valuing what you do over relational stuff in your life? I'm not saying you have to choose one over the other, but if you choose what he chose, in the end he had no one to share it with when he did all of his productivity and when he created all of the the fruit of his labors and when he worked his tail off, he had no one to share it with. Absolutely no one. And so what you need to ask yourself is, if I'm valuing my work, if it's my life, and I'm valuing it over relationships, in the end, where does this lead? Who cares if you get whatever and you've got no one to share? Is there anything worse than having an awesome moment and having no one to share it with? Right? Listen, some of us in this room have learned how to medicate our loneliness with our busyness. Some of us in this room have learned how to medicate our loneliness with our busyness. I'm not saying being busy is not part of life. It is absolutely part of life. But some of us, we feel the pain of loneliness, 
we, we fill that and we think, oh, I probably should go out and meet people or get to know people. But uh, instead, I'll just start a second business. Instead, I'll just add a sixth and seventh hobby. Instead, I'll find some diversion, some distraction to deal, to numb my loneliness. And some of us have learned how to medicate our loneliness with our busyness. And I just want you to know God didn't create you for that. He didn't create me for that. When I feel pain, the thing I want to do is throw myself into another book, start writing another message. Sometimes what I need to do is make a phone call. Sometimes what I need to do is have the coffee, have the lunch, have the difficult conversation. But if you don't have people in your life that you can do that with, then you won't be able to do it. You'll have to find some substitute to numb the loneliness that, that, that you're feeling in your life. And then in verse 9, he just begins to paint this picture using quite a few illustrations. I'd love to walk through the text here in 9 through 12. He's painting this picture. He just says, here's the premise for those of you who are English majors and you need a main idea this morning. The main idea is the first half of verse 9. Two are better than one. Say it with me. Two are better than one. You're like, Ben, I got that in first grade. Two is greater than one. But you're not living it out as an adult. You got the principle down. You got the formula. Is it being displayed in your life? Two are better than one. The first reason why this is true, he says, is because they have a good reward for their toil. Now, I think the idea there is twofold. I think the idea when you say two is better than one, they have a good reward for their work. I think one is that um, the joy of working with someone else makes what you produce better. I hope that you feel that way. Now, listen, you might be starting a business and you can only afford yourself right now, but I hope that you get the chance to work with someone else because that's where real joy, I think, comes in. And I think even along the lines of productivity, I think we can, we can produce stuff better together than we can produce alone. I just believe that. I think it's true. And then in verse 10, he goes on to paint this picture. He says, if you have two that are doing life together, if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, right? So if you fall, but you're with someone else in life, this is metaphorical. Obviously, we know it's physical too, right? If you fall, someone's physically there to pick you up. And metaphorically, figuratively, someone's there to pick you up. But woe to him who is alone, verse 10, when he falls and has no one to lift him up. Friends, the, the, the question for 2013 is not, will you and I fall this year? You will. You will. You will make an unwise decision somewhere along the way, even if you're having a string of really great decisions right now. You will fall into some sort of sinful pattern or habit or just a one-time sin. And even if, you're clean, even if you have a clean record after those two, we all live long enough to know that circumstances will take our feet right, from out, out, right out from under us, won't they? Right? And, and security goes away, what seemed like security and what seemed like stability goes away. You will fall this year. No matter how good your streak is right now, no matter how good the promotions are, no matter how well you're playing, no matter what it is, you will fall sometime this year. And the question is, who will be there? Who's there for you when you fall? You're like, no, Ben, you don't understand. I'm going to make sure I don't fall. I'm going to make sure that I'm smart enough, that I'm talented enough. I'm not going to fall. You will fall question is, will you have anybody there to pick you up when you fall? Will you have anybody there to pick you up whenever you fall? He goes on in verse 11. He says, again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? All of you single people in the room, look at your pastor. I do not want you going out in the city this week <laughs> looking for other single people and saying, hey, I was in church Sunday I usually don't do what my pastor says, but this sounds like a great idea. I'm just looking for someone to lie down with and keep me warm. Now, physically, that's true, right? 
And in the culture in which it was written, and, and listen, Jesus even tells a parable in the New Testament, there's no central heat, okay? And so you've got a situation where, uh, you know, you, the parable Jesus tells one time about a man who's lying down with his kids, it's not a strange situation, it's just how they kept warm. And so friends would stay warm by lying down together, it's just part of it. Does that make sense? We're all, I know most of you aren't mature enough to, to, to think metaphorically, but also physically like it happened in this culture. And here's what's so crazy. Imagine there's these two people right? And they're both freezing. Now, what's wild is that neither one of them can do anything on their own to produce heat. Isn't that amazing? Think about it metaphorically in our lives. It's, it's like God's saying, hey, there, there's something that neither of you, it's not like the strong person will warm the cold person. That's not what he's saying. He's saying metaphorically, listen, one, they're both cold and neither of them can do anything by themselves to bring about warmth. So what do they have to do? All of a sudden, they've not done anything. They've not grown in their warmth individually. They've not figured out a way to make heat rush through their body. All of a sudden, two people who could bring about nothing by themselves are able to bring about something amazingly powerful when they're together. Do you have someone like that, physically and metaphorically? Do you have someone that fills that? Then he goes on to verse 12. Pick it up in verse 12. He's going to do a progressive kind of thing in verse 12. He's going to say, hey, when it's one-on-one, someone might prevail against you. Do you see it? One-on-one, someone might prevail against you. Oh, but if you have two of you, um, you'll be able to withstand this, this opposition. You see where he's getting at? And then when he talks about a threefold cord, he's saying, but, but even better than two or three of you, three of you will, will keep from quickly breaking. Now today, I'm sorry, ladies and non-sports fans, this is the Super Bowl, so I can make as many sports analogies as I would like, okay? Today, we are going to double-team Ray Lewis, right? Or it'll be a long day, right? I mean, we're going to put, we're going to get the tight end on him, we're going to get our guard, I mean, we're going to pull, we're going to take, we're going to run away from him, we're going to double-team him because it gives us a better chance to be successful. In life, the same thing is absolutely true. Who's double-teaming your situation with you? And even better, if you can get two on either side of you to triple team the things that life is going to bring at you, evil is going to bring at you, situations are going to bring at you, financial problems are going to bring at you, circumstances just in general, who are you double teaming life with? You're like, oh, Ben, I can handle this. Seriously? Everything Solomon, the wisest guy to ever live, he's just wrong? Who are you double teaming life with? Who are you triple teaming life with? Now, that's fun. It's like a red rover chain that cannot be overtaken, right? Doesn't matter who comes over, you, you're, you're secure. And so he just makes that progressive. He's like, one person might prevail against you, but oh, get a friend with you, somebody that's really the right kind of person, you, they won't quickly, uh, you'll be able to withstand them, but even get three people, that, that is not quickly broken. Here's what I know about every human being in this room, and I think that's all we have in this room, human beings. Uh, every human being in this room, this is true for, we all want it to be true of our lives, for this phrase to be a- adequate and true, my life is not quickly broken. You want it, you want it, I want it, you want it, we all want it. We all want this to be true, right? That we can say confidently and boldly, my life isn't quickly broken. But listen, if you don't have the right kind of people in your inner circle or anybody in your inner circle, the, the opposite is true. Your life will break quickly. No matter how talented you are, smart you are, good looking you are, your life will break quickly. Who's gonna keep it from breaking? Who, who's gonna stand there with you? Who's, who's gonna be there 
And listen, just so you understand, this isn't an isolated thing from the Bible. This is not like, oh, Solomon had this opinion, but everyone else in the Bible had a different opinion. Let me just give you some reference points. You can look this up later. In Genesis 2.18, uh, there's one human being that's been created. His name is Adam. Maybe you've heard of him. And God just begins to observe the situation with Adam. Genesis 2.18, and he goes, golly, it's not good for him to be alone. So I'm going to give him a helper suitable to him. Was it a marriage deal? Absolutely. But it was also a companionship deal. Absolutely a marriage deal, but it was a companionship. It's not good for him to be alone. I walked our staff through this next text, Exodus 18. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, write that down if you're a leader of any kind. If you're a manager, executive, Exodus 18. Here's what's just happened. Moses has led about 2 million Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Great leadership lesson. They've been enslaved for 430 years, and God uses Moses to lead 2 million of them out after 400 years of something. He's a good leader, right? I mean, he would get your job if he applied for it the same time you did. He's just a good leader. But what's crazy, his father-in-law Jethro, I hope that's not your father-in-law's name, but if it is, that's blessings to you and, and Jethro. Um, Jethro shows up with Moses' wife. You know, like it's, it's like Moses has been on a business trip. He's been leading two million people. Well, then his father-in-law, that he's got, his father-in-law is where his wife and his sons are staying. His father-in-law Jethro with his wife Zipporah, I hope your wife's not named that, but Zippy would be a great short name if she is. Um, and then they have two sons, and all of them come back. And Jethro kind of has this man-to-man conversation, and any of you men who are married, you know what it's like to have that conversation with your father-in-law. Awkward at first, right? You're like trying to take away his pride and joy, his treasure, and at least that's how it works for me. Love you, father-in-law. Um, Jethro shows up, and he says, Uh, he he observes what's going on, how God has delivered Moses and the people. And you can imagine Moses having this proud moment, right? I mean, you want to show up. Your father-in-law, we we do impress, we want to impress our fathers-in-law, don't we, guys? I mean, even if we're no good, we want them to think we are. Well, you can imagine, he's telling Jethro, here's how God delivered, here's what happened. Listen, we were enslaved uh, under Pharaoh for 430 years, and that's gone, and I've led the way. Jethro looks at him and he says, Moses, what you are doing is not good. If you continue to lead alone, you will wear yourself out. And so he says to him, you need to get men who are able to have some over thousands, some over hundreds, some over fifties, some over tens, because what you're doing is not good. This man had just led two million people out of slavery. You would think he could handle it. Well, oh, let's go to the New Testament. Jesus doesn't even seek to accomplish his, his mission alone, does he? He has 12 men. Now, Maybe we should fault his uh, choosing, but he asked 12 men to come and help carry out the mission, create the movement of Christianity. And then you get to Luke chapter 10, and Jesus is going to send out 72 disciples to share about him throughout all the region. But here's what's interesting. He doesn't send them, send them to 72 different destinations. You know how many he sends them to? 36. You know why? Because he wouldn't let any of them go alone. This principle is all throughout the scriptures, and it's all throughout Christian history, and it's all throughout our own experiences. When we began to think about planting a church here, we were told that lots of churches that started here didn't survive long term, and so we wanted to find out why and then kind of do the opposite thing. That was our plan. One of the reasons was that most people didn't spend enough time in preparation, and so before we ever moved here, it was about 18 months um, to, to kind of work on planning and strategy and that kind of stuff. Another, we found out that a lot of people started a church here without realizing the significant amount of funding that's needed. So we wanted to give enough time and try to, you know, make the sales pitch to people all over the country, uh, churches, and 20 of them came on board. Many of you know that story. But then thirdly, we found out that many of them tried to go at it alone. 
And so initially it was just me and Shauna and, and our three boys. And just keep this in mind, those of you that are going to have more than two children, once you get to three, don't ever allow voting in your house, Okay. Once, you, once you're not the majority, it's like, no, this is, a, uh, you know, this is not a democracy. Um, this is a dictatorship. Uh, you know, otherwise, we would have never came to San Francisco, I'm guessing. But they, they love it now. And so it was just us. And one of the things for Shauna and I, before anybody else had really signed on, we're just like, you know what? We don't want to do this alone for lots of reasons. But it's just not the way God designed us. And so we had an initial staff team, and then we began to meet people in the city, and then we began to meet all of you guys. And now we go, you know what, let's pursue this vision collectively. Let's be a church that's not quickly broken because we have people doing life side by side about things that really matter and things that are, things that are really important. So, so you've got that whole, uh, that whole deal there. And, and, and what I want you to think about is who are the people who get the first phone call or text messages when you have a struggling issue, when you have something exciting to share? When you have something you need someone to pray about, when you find yourself falling into temptation, my guess is that you, like me, because we come from so many places here, you have people in this country and all over the world that you talk to about those things, right? And I want you to continue to do that. But hear this from your pastor. You have to have someone you're able to do that in a present physical proximity way. Does that make sense? Someone that you're seeing, there's just, listen, no, no matter where we go technology-wise, you will never be able to substitute that for what you can do face-to-face. My dad is here. I talk to him three or four times a week. I talk to lots of friends all over the country. But there are some times if I didn't have people face-to-face, I would not be able to live out what Solomon's advocating for. And so if you're new to the city or you're just like, Ben, I can't make friends here, Make a plan to have people, whatever city you live in, wherever you will live, have people in a local, physical way. Virtual presence is great, but it cannot substitute um, for your actual physical presence until we start teleporting or something, okay? And so I just want you to have somebody in your life, a group of people, one, two, four. I don't care how many, but this is such a crucial issue. Now, if you were to ask me, you were to sit down and interview me and say, hey, Ben, tell me about your spiritual growth. Uh, Probably the first thing you would say to me is, but you've got a long way to go. And that's absolutely true. But then you would begin to ask me questions. Ben, what have been the things that have shaped you? And I would tell you about books that I read and reading things in the Bible. And I would talk to you about habits. But it wouldn't take us long for me to begin to tell you about specific individuals who have shaped me into the man I am. You can blame them. All right? I learned about generosity more than anyone else from my dad. I learned about what it means to love God and to pray boldly and consistently from my wife. There have been pastors that have poured into me to help me become the, the kind of pastor I am. Again, blame them. Um, the kind of husband that I am. The kind of, the kind of father that I am. You cannot reach your spiritual growth capacity without people. You just won't. Like, this is just, and, and this isn't an introvert-extrovert thing. This is just the way God designed us thing. All of us. All of us. It's just the way that he made us. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, this isn't a preference issue. It's an obedience issue. Let me say it again. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're seeking to orient your life around Jesus, this isn't like, hey, do you think you want to try this? This is like, no, this is the way you were made. It's the way he crafted you. It's what he put in you. And you're like, oh, Ben, God's enough. Well, that's not what God says. It's not what God says. What are we living for and who are we living with? And some of you may say, Ben, I've got an inner circle. Great, but here's the question for that one. Are the right kinds of people in the circle? I'm not just saying get an inner circle. Please do not quote me as that. Get your circle, but are the right kinds of people in the circle? Go back through the text. Ask yourself this. Are they people that give you a good reward for your work? Are they people that when you fall, they can help you up? When they fall, you're there to help them up. 
Are they people that keep you warm? Are there people that help you prevail and win? Are they people that help you withstand? Are they people who keep you from being quickly broken? And if you have no one in the circle, you're in a danger zone. If you don't have the right people in the circle, that may be more dangerous because they'll manipulate you, they'll use you. Who's in your circle? One of the things we know as leadership here at Epic is that we cannot make any person in this room grow spiritually, including myself. There is nothing my staff can do to make me grow spiritually. Does that make sense? Now, what they can do, what my wife can do, what we can do for you as a church is we can create a certain kind of environment to make the likelihood of your spiritual growth more, more realistic, more likely. And so that's what we do. And one of those environments for us is our Epic Groups environment. And listen, I... I want to just plead with you, if you don't have a place to live out the kind of thing we're talking about today, we've created 12 of these unique environments for you. You've got an insert in your program. Look at those. Sign up before you leave. You'll you'll hear how to do that. And I'm not a fool. I know that it doesn't automatically make you grow spiritually if you even sign up and go to a group. But let me give you six things that will be helpful. Six things that will be helpful about this. This is the application part. Sign up for a group, number one. Sign up for a group. Number two, attend the group as frequently as you're able. I didn't say attend it as frequently as it is convenient. I didn't say attend it whenever you don't have anything better to do. Attend it as frequently as you're able. Essentially, if you're in town, barring something crazy, attend it. Three, when you're there, engage and participate in what's going on. Engage and participate. I'll give you these, I'll run through them again in a second. Number four, seek out the two to three people in your group whom you seem to be relationally compatible with. If there's 15 people in the group, I'm not going to ask you to go get 14 new BFFs, okay? But there's likely to be two or three people there that could become a friend of yours like we're talking about this morning. Number five, be authentic. You don't have to air all of your dirty laundry, but be, be yourself. Be yourself. And number six, stay connected. Don't make it a one-hour-a-week thing on a Tuesday night. Stay connected. Now, what I want you to do with that in mind, I want, I want you to think about, hypothetically, every one of us in here are equal, Okay? We all have the same income. We all have the same athletic ability, right? And you're thinking, well, no, Ben, we're not quite like you. That's true, but you're going to grow into that, all right? Some of you are like, wow, I didn't know the pastor could throw. Um, I've been practicing. Uh, Just assume everything's the same, our spiritual maturity. Everything's the same for every person in this room, okay? But let's assume for the next three months, the only thing that's different is that some of us are going to engage through epic groups or through some other process the, the, the thing we talked about this morning, there's, that, that's going to be the only difference. That's the only kind of X factor for both of us, all of us in the room. Um, here's the deal. The people who live out what we've talked about, their lives are just going to be different. And I would say better than those of you who don't. This morning, we're at a place as a church where we're about 50% of our weekly attendance is signed up for a group. Okay, so that makes about 130 adults. Um, so Eugenia says, how many, uh, what's the percentage of people who aren't signed up for a group? Come on, come on. You might get everything else wrong today. All right, so we're, we're 50-50. It's kind of where we are, last, last report I got on Thursday or Friday. If you have an opportunity to do this, and you've heard clearly from a man who's called the wisest person to ever live, who thinks most of things in life are meaningless, but he's found something meaningful, and you've heard it from your pastor, listen, there are people this week that I was able to, three men in, in, in our church, also in our city, that I was able to sit across from face-to-face this week and tell them very difficult things or have them share with me very difficult things, and the only way we were able to do that is because of the investment of our relational time. I don't want everybody to know what's going on in the depths of my heart, but I need somebody to know. So do you. So do you. Two weeks ago, 
He's not in the room, so I'll share this. But two weeks ago, uh, one of my sons was just struggling. It was tough. It was one of those moments. I was flying out for a business trip, and we dropped him off at school, and it was just, uh, it was just sad. It was a terribly sad moment for me and for Shauna, and just seeing him overwhelmed. And, of course, I was headed to the airport after it shortly, and after dropping him off and just going, oh, man, that's terrible. I, I began to pray for him, but as soon as I finished praying, I sent a text message to five men, most of whom are in the city, some of whom are in this room, and just said, hey, would you pray for? I named which son it was. And you know why I could do that? Because I knew they weren't going to ask me a million questions. I knew they weren't going to gossip about, oh, gosh, what's wrong? I, I knew they would pray. How did I know that? Because they love me. Because we've been through stuff together. Because we're going to walk through life together. They're going to help me and my family keep from quickly breaking. Who's going to help you? Who's going to help you? I want to show the gospel of Jesus through this lens before we finish this morning, too. If you think about the warmth and cold analogy, that's probably my favorite one. And so I want to share it through, through this lens. Um, remember that the two individuals who are both cold, they can't produce anything on their own to bring about warmth. Remember that illustration, everybody? It wasn't last week, just 20 minutes ago. Everybody with me? Like, oh, man, pastor's insecurity going through the roof. Um, so what the Bible says about all of us, think about the person who's cold. What the Bible says about all of us is that we're alone and we're alienated from God, and that we can't do anything on our own to bring ourselves to gain God's acceptance or approval, okay? That's just a reality. We just can't do it. It doesn't matter how smart we get, how much church we go to, how much we sing, how much we pray, how much we give. We just can't do it. But the Bible says while we were still sinners, God sent Christ to come and cover our sin and bring something into our reality that we could not produce on our own. And if you've not entered into that, then everything you've heard today is true. It's practical help, but you're still going to miss the covering. Isn't that awesome? Alienated from God, dead in our sins, the Bible says. We sang about it earlier. But we can be forgiven and we can be made new and have a new reality exist in our hearts because Christ can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And that one, no one else could do that for you either. But he has come to do it, and now it's on you. John says in John 1.12, he writes that how, um, he says to all of those who receive Christ, that Jesus gave the right to those individuals to become sons and daughters of God. Later on, he would write another book, 1 John. In chapter 3, verse 1, he said, How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called the sons and the daughters of God. He's come to make our reality different. Has he made yours different yet? Would you guys pray with me?